Greetings and welcome to White's Run Baptist Church. We are online and we are covering today Matthew chapter 2, The Magi and Me. I want to welcome you to this session and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 and we're going to talk about these mysterious men that we know as Magi or wise men that we've heard about in the account of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Now this takes place shortly after his birth, probably within a year or two, and these magi come and visit, they find them in a house. So let's take a look at what the scripture says. We'll begin there and then we'll talk about how this can be encouraging to us and we can see very clearly how this will apply to us. So join me in the scriptures, Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, it's uh, by you that this has been brought to us. It is uh, by you then that we are to understand these things. I pray that we would not only understand the words you've put here, but we would understand what it is you would have us to do with them. How would we put these things into practice? How do these things apply to our lives here today? We thank you, Lord, that your word is always relevant, and we thank you now that you will show us how. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have a very fascinating account. It's one of my favorites, and we generally preach this around Christmas season, but we'll get into a little later uh, why, that's, why that is that we do that and how we might have some error in doing so. But nevertheless, anytime we have an opportunity to open up the scriptures and jump in there and learn something, we're going to do so. So I want to begin this with a very simple outline. What I want to do is I want to see what history says about these magi, these wise men, what the Old Testament says about them, and then we'll take a look at our passage at what the New Testament says. And then finally, we're going to apply this to ourselves and determine, well, what therefore do we say about the wise men? 
So first, I want to talk about what history says about the wise men. And I have a simple outline to help us there. What history says about the wise men, these are called magi. And these are associated, according to the various Bible dictionaries and the historical sources you can find on the subject, Herodotus, Plutarch, Strabo, and uh, some other writings. Most of them come back to these guys. And what we find out is these were from Media or Persia, which was, of course, east of Judea. And these were men that were often associated with the religious practices of Zoroastrianism. Now, what we see very clearly from the scripture and from the historical accounts is this. These were highly educated men from Media Persia who were skilled in religion, astrology, and the sciences. Everything that today we would call science, they were dabbling in. They were responsible in Persia, in the old Persian Empire, for a lot of the ritual and cultic life uh, leading in those areas, but also as royal advisors. And they held a belief, along with many in the East in those days, that major historic events were displayed in the stars and in other phenomena. They were therefore known as what we might call today astrologers, interpreting signs in the stars. They were also known for dabbling in the interpretation of dreams. So today, we might very well call these religious gurus, or some of the things they did, we might call them scientists. And this is very interesting. They devoted a lot of time and energy to studying the world and studying the cultures of the world and things like this. And this is part of the reason of why they were considered so mysterious, is that they had knowledge of scientific things that would cause them to to do things that, that people might call magic. But we also want to understand they were very politically influential. They were considered by some to be kingmakers, that they were uh, involved with the rise and fall of many leaders in the uh, ancient East. And they indeed had much understanding and were recognized by kings. That's why we sing of them even as we three kings, because they were that influential in their leadership. Now, all this could simply be enough to indicate their interest in neighboring Judea getting a new king. And let's summarize this. These were important royal advisors who explored astrology, science, and religions, and they were centered east of Israel in Babylon, Persia area, which was at the current time when they came to visit the baby Jesus, uh, or the young Jesus, they were the Parthian Empire. So now let's move on. What does the Old Testament say about the Magi? And it's very interesting because they'll say, well, I, I didn't know the Old Testament said anything about the Magi. Well, the New Testament, as you might know, is written in the Greek language. And the Old Testament was originally written in the Hebrew language. But about 250 years before Jesus Christ was born, the Old Testament Hebrew was translated by a large group of Hebrew scholars into Greek. And this was done in North Africa and under the leadership of the Greek leader there uh, after uh, Alexander the Great had accomplished so much and conquered so much of the world. His empire fell to th four of his 
uh, generals, basically. And this one that was found in North Africa in Alexandria decided we needed the Hebrew in Greek. We needed the Hebrew uh, scriptures translated into Greek. So they did that. And the great thing about it is that Greek translation is actually what we find Jesus and the apostles quoting. We can tell by the way they say things in the New Testament that they are quoting from this Greek translation of their Hebrew scriptures. And so this uh, has been a reliable link, therefore, to the Old Testament, because when we find a word in the New Testament, like Magi, and we want to know what that translates to in the Old Testament, we can look it up in the Septuagint, then we can go to the word it translates in the Hebrew and we can learn a great deal. Now, this word appears in the Old Testament 10 times, and all of those occurrences are in the book of Daniel. And we find out early on in the book of Daniel that the Magi were actually led by Daniel during the time of the Babylonian Empire, but also during the time of the next empire that came along, the Persian Empire. And so Daniel, his importance spanned these two empires. Now, Daniel's the one in Daniel chapter 9, uh, near the end of the chapter there, he had a vision of 70 weeks of years for Messiah to accomplish his purposes. And what that prophecy ends up doing is giving us a timeline for the presentation of the Messiah. And his timeline would point to his soon coming at the time that Jesus was born. And so this was powerfully important that there's this connection with Daniel and the Magi and they're knowing this time frame of the coming Messiah. Now the question is, what was Daniel doing in the Babylonian and Persian Empire at that time? Well, let's take a look here. If we look in Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, look what it says. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, now this would be the king of Babylon, to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldean. And so this is powerfully important because what this says is Babylon was in the habit of when they would conquer people, they would take from among that people their best and brightest. They would grab copies of their literature and of their histories and things like that, bring it back to Babylon, study it. Then they would teach the best and brightest from these other nations, the Babylonian language, and learn all they could from them and incorporate them as advisors to the king. Very wise thing to do. In other words, they were embracing diversity by bringing these people around and getting the best and brightest of all these nations together and seeing what they knew. Well, Daniel got in charge of these guys because of his ability to interpret the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar we find in Daniel chapter 2. And so this was what Babylon did. And, you know, they really started seeing the Magi show up around this time. And Daniel, of course, being in charge of them. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is reflecting on the book of Jeremiah. And in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah talks about the captivity over in Babylon. He talks about the people being deported. 
and he gives a timeline. It's going to be 70 years that they'll be in captivity. Daniel is reading that, and he's realizing that he's nearing the end of it. So he has a, a time of prayer and of fasting in Daniel chapter 9, and he is rewarded through his search of the scriptures, through his prayer and fasting over these things, through his repentant attitude, he's rewarded with this vision that comes in a chapter that gives him the timing of the coming Messiah, the first coming of Jesus Christ. Now, don't get too excited. That prophecy does not tell us when he's coming the second time. Jesus said we won't know the day or the hour, but it did say when he would come the first time. And so let me summarize this. Babylon collected the best and brightest from all the nations, put them together, appointed Daniel, an Israelite, who was given special prophecies of God and had the Old Testament with him as their head. So these magi then from the east were led during two empires by Daniel, who had these writings, had those prophecies, and here they show up some 500 years later at the birth of Jesus, or shortly after the birth of Jesus Christ. So now let's go to the New Testament. What does the New Testament say about the Magi? Well, in the New Testament, we find that they came, of course, from the East. And that goes right along with our understanding of from the story here in Matthew chapter 2. It says very plainly that they came from the East. And secondly, their presence and their inquiry troubled the king and all Jerusalem with them. Look at verse 3 here. And this is the kind of detail we might overlook if we're not careful. When Herod the king heard this, okay, what did they hear? Well, they heard they're going around town here. Where is he who's born king of the Jews? So the, the Magi show up, the wise men show up, they start asking questions. Where is the guy who's been born king of the Jews? And this, Herod hears about it, he was troubled, and it says, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, this makes it very clear that these weren't three eccentric random fellows on camels, as they've been popularly depicted in movies and in our children's plays that we do at church. In fact, they were probably on horses, and they were probably, actually, I'm going to say definitely, accompanied by some soldiers because of the nature of the gifts that they brought, and some servants to serve them because these were important men. These were dignitaries. They would have had people along with them as their assistants, as their servants, people to pitch the tent. This was not a stroll over into Judea. This was a least a month long journey, probably more than that, to come here. And so they would have needed massive amounts of supplies, several people. And so what this is, is effectively a caravan comes marching into town, starts asking, where's the newborn king of the Jews? And this is fascinating. Um, so why do we get the impression there were only three men? Well, because we sing a song called We Three Kings, and the Bible mentions indeed three gifts. Now, it never says there's only three wise men. It merely says wise men, plural, and then it talks about their three gifts. So for the sake of our Christmas plays, it was much easier to have three kids play the wise men, give them each a gift to present, and tell the story that way. But we have to be careful that tradition always takes a backseat to the Bible. The Bible is our authority. So three gifts are mentioned, not three men. And these three men did not come to a stable 
they came to a house and they didn't come to an infant newborn Jesus. The word here is for a young child. So Jesus is probably a toddler, probably one to two years old. And when these guys show up, so they're not there with the shepherds. They're not there, you know, with the animals or anything. These guys come later and they come to a house to worship him. Now, to put this in perspective then, these were foreign dignitaries from a rival empire. Judea, as you know, from the reading in the New Testament, was under the Roman Empire at the time. They were under the control of Rome, and they were a border Roman province. And Rome had different rankings for their provinces as far as their privileges, and it was based upon how peaceful and obedient that particular province was and how things were going there. Uh, Judea never made it off the bottom rung. They had quite a few revolutions there, quite a few unsuccessful attempts to overthrow Rome. And uh, one shortly after uh, Jesus was here, ended up in the destruction of the temple. And so they never made it off the bottom rung of being a province. They were always on the border of the Parthian Empire, which there were concerns that the Parthian Empire would try to take this region for their benefit because it was a very strategic reason. And so here comes all these fellows from the neighboring empire and the people of the city and Herod himself have to be asking questions like, are, are these people spies? Is there going to be a war? What kind of espionage is going on that they're looking for some other king? They're not looking for Herod. Herod hadn't had a child at this point, you know, not recently. He had other had other children. He's probably too old at this point to have any more. And so he didn't have a newborn child that they should be coming to see. And so this was all very troubling. So they're very important. They're summoned then by the king uh, in order for the king to try to figure out what's going on with these guys. Why are they here? And so let's take a look here. Uh, the chief priests and the scribes effectively confirm their search. Because if we look at the scriptures, Herod gets his chief priests and scribes together, says, what are these guys talking about? Where is it that the Christ, which is Messiah, where is it that this Christ is to be born? And they go, well, it's in Bethlehem. <laughs> so I actually have an answer. So it turns out these guys aren't far off base. Bethlehem's a few mile miles down the road. So these guys actually show up in the relative right place at the right time. And so, of course, Herod says, oh, you know, go and see him and, and come back and report to me so I can go worship him as well, which of course wasn't true. He was a jealous, he was erratic, he was a violent king, he was an illegitimate king, he never should have been on the throne there, but nevertheless he was because of Rome's involvement. And so he's going to try to wipe out this child, and you read about that later in the chapter. But the chief priest, quoting from the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, uh, says, indeed, this, this is going to be in Bethlehem that this takes place. So the chief priest and scribes kind of give legitimacy to these guys' search. And now the question is, you know, why weren't they asking other questions? Like, they show up looking for him who's born king of the Jews, and the people aren't caught 100% off guard. They're like, what do you mean? What king of the Jews? They knew there was a coming Messiah. They don't say, well, we don't know what you're talking about, or, or better yet, here's an answer. Here's where and, and how he's going to be born and everything else. But they're not surprised by the question. The priests and scribes saw their request as consistent with the scriptures. 
Now, something else that shows how important these guys are and how knowledgeable they were are the gifts that they bring. Their gifts show that they have great knowledge of the importance of Messiah, the Christ. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh are the three that are listed. There may have been other gifts, but these are the three that that God decided had to be in the scripture. Gold would be a, a normal gift to give a king, especially a newborn king. You know, any neighboring king, if he had a child, you'd go present gold. If he got married, you'd go present gold. If one of his children got married, you'd go present gold. It was kind of the default. It was like today's equivalent of giving someone a gift card at a good occasion. And But it's not just gold. Uh, they come with frankincense, and frankincense was used by priests. And we find out in the New Testament that Jesus is indeed our great and final high priest. But not only that, they bring myrrh. Now, myrrh is a valuable spice in and of itself and would be an okay gift to give somebody uh, just because of its great value and the fact that you're going to need it for somebody sooner or later because myrrh was a burial spice. Now, did they understand that Jesus would be an atoning sacrifice? Maybe not, but maybe they did. See, in Daniel chapter 9, that we referenced earlier, that would give them the relative timing of the Messiah, it does mention there that Messiah would be cut off. And they may interpret that as his being, you know, being killed somehow. But more importantly, we know that Daniel had other scriptures with him. And some of those other scriptures state much more plainly, I'm thinking of Isaiah 53, but there are also some others that state rather plainly that he is to be killed, that he's to be sacrificed. So what we see here is that history and the Old Testament and the priests and scribes of Judea all indicate that these guys are legitimately seeking the Messiah. They know what they're doing. And there is one endorsement above all these that shows the rightness of what they're doing. That is, there is one clue here that shows what they are doing is that they are dead on. They are spot on in coming to Judea at this time, seeking the newborn king, finding Jesus, and worshiping him. And here it is. It's in verse 12. It says, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The Bible makes it clear that God's in charge of dreams. Now, can other things give dreams? Uh, Well, perchance, but we know that God is also absolutely sovereign. So if you have a dream, uh, it didn't slip through there without God knowing. And that's why God often sends his people to interpret dreams like he did, interestingly, with Daniel. This is how Daniel rose to to power, really, to be over the Magi, is he successfully interpreted a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And so they're warned in a dream, and this is generally done by God by those who serve him. There are, interestingly, a couple times in the scriptures that God gives dreams to Gentiles, that is, non-Jews like these magi. I'm thinking of Pharaoh, who at the time of Joseph 
had dreams that Joseph interpreted and ended up in the saving of Egypt and many people and including the family of Abraham. There's also Nebuchadnezzar there in the book of Daniel who's given a dream. And those dreams and their interpretations ultimately serve God's plans and God's people. So very important details we understand there about dreams and that they have been warned in a dream is God endorsing their message by communicating with them, by saying, indeed, you've done the right thing. Now you're going to have to go back by another way because King Herod is not to be trusted. And that's an understatement. Uh, So let me summarize up to this point. A group of influential and highly educated Gentiles showed up from far away risking a diplomatic incident to worship Jesus Christ as a child. Now let's put that in perspective. Jesus was sent by God at the proper time to fulfill a mission written about for centuries in the Old Testament. And his identity is worthy of worship. So that's what the New Testament says about the Magi. But here's my question for you. I want to know what you say about the Magi. And we've seen history, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, and what they have to say about the Magi. But what about you? Now, I'm not looking for your opinion about the Magi, what they were like or what they did. We know that the Bible is true. We've interpreted it properly, and we've added to our knowledge with some historical sources. But by what do you say about the Magi? I'm not asking for an opinion about them. I'm asking about, were they crazy? They went at least a month's journey. Most of what I've seen, this would take longer. They went traveling, which was dangerous in and of itself, with precious gifts into a neighboring rival empire. They upset the king. They upset all the people in the capital. And they did all this to come kneel before a toddler and offer him gifts and worship him. Let's face it, on the surface, that sounds crazy. But when you factor in that these were not just learned men, they weren't just eccentric or curious, they were influential. They had access to centuries of information and experience. And that causes me to wonder Does that cause you to wonder if they worshiped Jesus? Should I? What makes me think I am better than them, that I wouldn't worship Jesus? Would I suppose that, you know, many, many centuries removed and many of what, much of what they know being lost to me and unknown by me and me being relatively unlearned in the things of the past and the things of empires and, you know, how it is that kings are made and how it is that empires transition, being ignorant of all those things, I think I'm going to make a better decision 
about this Jesus. See, we do a lot with the Christmas season. And we do a lot of running around, we send cards, we plan parties, we give gifts, we decorate our houses, and you, you could go into a great deal about the decorations and whether they're relevant or not. But we go through all this trouble, but the question is, do we really worship Jesus Christ? And maybe we need to back up a little bit and say, well, wait a minute, what, what do you mean worship? What does it look like to worship somebody? Well, it begins with humiliation. Now, by humiliation, I don't mean being embarrassed in front of people. By humiliation, I don't mean that you should be ridiculed at, you know, and laughed at by others. What I mean is humiliation is just humbling of self. To recognize the lowness of ourself in the perspective of something so much greater. Are we humbled by this? And that's a question that we really need to work with. The beginning of worship really is a reverence. That's why these men in worshiping somebody, they would have come and they would have bowed to him. They would have given him gifts. You realize what it means to bow to somebody? It means you are higher than me. That means I'm going to make myself in the old days when there was a lot of violence among kings and things and they could meet with somebody and who knows what's going to happen really. Um, you would bow, you would essentially disarm yourself and expose yourself to them in a humble kind of way. It was a way of putting them above you. But then the giving of gifts, that does the same thing. To say, you are more worthy to have these things than I am here. Take these. These are for you. You're more worthy of them than me. I owe it to you because of your position. This comes hard against a people like us that are so proud that we rebelled against our king, at least in the United States here, and decided we're not going to kneel to any king anymore. And so we don't bow to people. We don't kneel to people anywhere in our country, uh, at least not outwardly. But people are doing it inwardly, powerfully. But what does it really look like to worship? It's a reverence. It's a recognition of Christ's rightful position as ruler in contrast to our rightful position as his subject. And the Bible calls this the fear of God. The Bible says in Psalm 111 verse 10 that the fear of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This journey to worship Christ by these wise men indicates this fear of the Lord. That's why they're called wise men. They went through the humiliation to lower themselves, to inconvenience themselves, to take this long journey and all this expense and this risk to go and worship before him, to go and tell this toddler that he is worthy of their worship. That is humiliation. In some translations, we have it come across as magi, but the ESV and many others, they bring it through to our language as wise men. That's a good translation for us to understand in our day. But we need to take wisdom in its context. When we talk about wisdom, 
with the Bible, the Bible defines wisdom differently than the world defines it. The Bible defines wisdom as godliness. It starts there, like we said in the Psalms, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the contrast with wisdom would be a fool. And in the Bible, a fool is the one who rejects God. He's the ungodly one. He's the one that goes on sinning without any regard for God, without considering what God has to say about things. This is what the Bible calls a fool. Now, in the world, we know that those that are wise are, it's usually associated with their intellect. It's usually associated with their abilities to apply knowledge. And the fool in the world is the one who is intellectually inferior or ignorant or unlearned, one who makes poor decisions. But in the Bible, the fool is the one who rejects God. He might be wise, and therefore, someone could be wise from a worldly perspective that is educated, clever, intelligent, wealthy, and famous. But if that person is rejecting God, by the Bible, they're a fool. And it's interesting that when you look around the world, it is precisely the educated, the clever, the wealthy, and the famous in this world who are most likely to scoff at the faith. That's because they suffer from the illusion that they are special. They are treated that way, so maybe they begin to believe that. But what they all fail to understand is that they have nothing that they were not given by God. And that before God, every human being is pitiable, blind, poor, and naked. If you're one of these, if you're a little too good for religion, if you think that, oh, I really don't need that, I think it's a crutch, Um, Gee, science has disproved that. I don't really need the whole Jesus thing in my life. It's a cute little holiday I like to do with the kids, and I teach them about Santa, which (laughs) call the Bible nonsense, teach your kids about Santa. Anyway, um, you think you're too good to bow down before Jesus Christ? Well, the Bible says something very startling, and I want to put it on the screen here so that you will see I'm reading plainly from the Scriptures. What it says in the Scriptures in Philippians chapter 2, where it speaks about, interestingly, it speaks about the humiliation of Christ, how much he humbled himself to come here, to be born, to be laid in a manger. Think about the king, creator of the universe, born into his creation, in the lowest of circumstances. He's humiliated far beyond any of us will ever be. And for that reason, he deserves our worship. But here's what it says about him at the end of this passage. It says, uh, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What does it mean under the earth? Subterranean peoples that we don't know about yet? No, it's speaking of the dead. In other words, it's speaking of all people of all times, whether they're in heaven or hell, whether they're on the earth. They're all going to confess, it says, 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'll let that sink in for a minute. Whether you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ or not, one day you will bow the knee to him and you will confess that he is Lord. Now after that, some of those people are going to go to heaven, going to go into a new heaven and new earth to spend eternity with Jesus Christ. Some of them are going to go into the lake of fire to spend eternity with the others who were too good for him, including Satan and some of his helpers. And so that's what the Bible presents to us. Will you be like these magi, these wise men who humbled themselves before Jesus Christ, or will you be too wise of the world? Now, if you think about the list of people that are too good for the gospel news, that are too good for Jesus Christ, they're the ones who control what we see in the media. They're the ones who control politics. They're the ones who are seen all the time talking, all the time making the media that we so voraciously consume constantly. And so we have to pose this question is, are you going to love the things of this world? more than the one true God who came into this world to save you? That's the question. And Christmas puts forth that question louder than any other time of year. Well, there's another question here. If if you're pretty settled in, in where you're at with Jesus Christ and you worship Christ and you follow Christ, will you continue to seek him The Bible makes it very clear that the world is continually trying to conform us to its pattern and that in order for us to fight against that, we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that is done by the Word of God through the power of the Spirit and wrestling with God in prayer and working out these things with one another in the fellowship of His church. You will not progress in your faith in Jesus Christ without the Bible, without the Holy Spirit, or without the church. All three are essential elements. Will you continue to seek Jesus Christ? The Bible is full of commands for his people to seek him. And the question will be, will you seek him more? And let me start with this. Is there anything you heard me say today that was utterly new to you that you had not heard before? If the answer is yes, then it's just an indicator that there's more out there for us to learn together. And so join in and decide you're going to seek him more. And this is one of the things that is promised in Scripture. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, seek First, his kingdom, his righteousness, all that you need, your necessities of life will be added to you. He says, this is our priority before even seeking our necessities, before earning a paycheck to put food on a table and clothes on our back, before that is seeking the kingdom. And he gives us a promise. He says, those who seek 
will find. Those who seek will find. Consider that. In other words, he's promising you, if you will just seek, if you will just look, you will find. And if you were encouraged or you learned something new today, you saw it because you pressed play, because you downloaded or you did whatever to enjoy this message. And here it's been given to you and you have found. And Jesus has promised that those who seek find. The wise men sought. They were following some information. We don't know what all information they were following. They followed this and took the risk and went forward and dedicated some time to it. And what did they do? They actually saw Jesus and Mary and Joseph with their eyes. They were there. They met the real King Herod the Bible talks about. And they saw the places that Jesus saw. And they walked in the places he walked. If you seek him, he will be found by you, and it will be a blessing. The Bible commands all of us to seek God, so let's do that. And you'll be rewarded as the Magi were. You'll have a great experience. You'll have further revelation. And just like them, you'll be woven into this tapestry of faith that goes all throughout history. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this day and we praise you. And Lord, we, uh, we take the time to acknowledge that you have promised for those who seek that we indeed will find, as the Magi did. Teach us this day to follow you. Give us the faith to take the next step in knowing you. And Lord, to all who are listening and for all who are listening, I pray that you'll, that you'll just bless them with your presence and with an, an overwhelming knowledge of what their next move is. Do they need to talk to somebody about faith in Jesus Christ? Do they need to then join up with the church so they can be properly discipled and edified and grown up in the faith? Do they need to follow you in obedience and be baptized into this body of Christ? Lord, you lead them. You teach them. And Lord, thank you for bringing us the word today. Thank you for bringing the wise men to come and teach us so much about worshiping Jesus Christ, our King. It's in his precious name that to this day we pray and we say amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed today, and I hope it's been a blessing to you, and I hope you've learned from it. Uh, You can contact us at whitesrun.org. You can find out much more about us, and you can uh, write to us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com, and we will personally answer that. You will not be signed up for a mailing list or any, any nonsense. You will simply be answered for the question that you have, and uh, you will have opportunity to interact with us and learn more. So may God richly bless you. I hope you had a blessed holiday and I hope you have many more to come.